Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 16 this morning. And we'll be looking at uh, the first convert of Macedonia, and that will be the salvation of Lydia. And we'll see this in verses 11 through 15 of Acts chapter 16. So I invite you to uh, open your Bibles there. I'd like to read this uh, passage for you as we begin. And remind you that as uh, we read the Word of God, as always, we're not reading the Word of man, but the Word inspired by the Holy Spirit, given for our instruction, our edification, and our blessing. So we receive the, the reading of God's Word in faith, knowing that His Word goes forth and will never return to Him in vain without accomplishing the purpose for which He sent it. So may God bless the reading of His Word. Acts chapter 16, verse 11. This is the Apostle Paul on the uh, second missionary journey. Luke is with him because he's going to refer to the we. So Luke has joined them. So in verse 11, So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And again, may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, we're about in the year 50 to 51 A.D. Paul is on his second missionary journey. And uh, he has uh, come across uh, Asia Minor, as we normally uh, speak of it. And uh, he has found his way to Troas. And Troas, here kind of on the, the westernmost part of what is modern day Turkey, is where he has basically been blocked. He can't go south into Asia. He can't go north into Bithynia. And uh, so he has stopped at a dead end at Troas. And he's waiting for the Lord's instructions. The Lord has closed this door. He's closed that door. He doesn't know what to do. He's at Troas. He's got a large body of water in front of him. So it's like the Lord has brought him to a dead end. And so he's there in Troas. He's waiting upon the Lord. And then God sends a vision. In the vision, there is a man from Macedonia that says, come help us. And he discusses it with the rest of the men that are in his uh, traveling, his ministry party. And they conclude that it's God's will for them to travel over uh, to the city, over into Macedonia. So at this point, they uh, get on a ship and they head their way over. Notice uh, we are told uh, in uh, 
in verse uh, 11 that they run a straight course to Samothrace, which is an island. Apparently, this ship they were on needed to unload some cargo. And then they sail up into Neapolis, which is the port city. And Philippi is about nine miles away from Neapolis. So here's the, here's the port that probably, most likely, Paul entered in his ship. This is uh, the port of the city of Neapolis. And from there, of course, they're going to make their way up to the city of Philippi. And we see they're going to meet Lydia, who interestingly enough is from Thyatira down in Asia, where he couldn't go. But let's uh, talk about uh, Philippi for a second. Uh, This is where they end up in verse 12. They arrive in Philippi. And uh, we are told that it's a leading city of the district of Macedonia. And if I, uh, you can see that Macedonia, let me go back a picture. You can see the large area of Macedonia. It's one of the districts in the Roman Empire. It's a very large area. And so Philippi is one of the leading cities of the district of Macedonia. It's a Roman colony. And we were staying in the city for some days, verse 12. Now, the, the name uh, Philippi comes from Philip II of Macedon, who is actually the father of Alexander the Great. And back in 357 B.C., he had come and captured this part of Macedonia. Uh, he lived in that general vicinity, but he came down and conquered this particular part of it and fortified this particular city and gave it his name, Philippi. So it comes from Philip, the the father of Alexander the Great. Uh, That was an important city for them because in a nearby mountain, there's a lot of gold mines, and so it was a very uh, source of a lot of uh, mineral wealth. And uh, he made it a very important city in the region of, of what came to be known as Macedonia. It also had a main highway that ran from uh, the east all the way across modern-day Greece, all the way to the east, to the western part of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And that was called the Via Ignatia. And it ran right through the middle of the city of Philippi, which meant that all traffic going from east and west would have to go through this city. So it was a very important city. Now, some of the uh, drawings of what it might have looked like back in the day that Paul was there uh, would be one like this. And you find basically the Acropolis at the top of the mountain. The Acropolis was kind of the fortified part of the city. It was where uh, uh, they would have maybe some of the major temples to their gods up there. Maybe some fortified buildings, some government building, different buildings up the top. And then the people would live down below uh, the mountain. And in this particular area, this is roughly where the city of uh, Philippi would have been. In 167 B.C., it came under Roman rule. The Romans conquered this area. And again, it was elevated to one of the leading cities of Macedonia. In 42 B.C., Philippi was the site of a decisive battle between the forces of Octavian, who was later made Augustus Caesar, the first emperor of Rome, and his partner Antonio or and yeah Anton Antony Antony sorry I'll get it out here eventually Antony 
And they defeated the army of Brutus and Cassius. Maybe you've heard some of these names from uh, history. And in honor of this great victory, they made Philippi a Roman colony, which gave it the rights of an Italian city. So its administration was set up like an Italian city, like Rome. It was modeled after Rome. Uh, Many of the citizens and soldiers of Rome would have been settled there. And if you were a citizen of Philippi, you also had a Roman citizenship. So it was a a Roman colony uh, with all the protections and privileges of being a, a citizen of Rome. So a very important city. Uh, we see that basically the city breakdown is something like this. This is at the base of the mountain. You can see a, a, a nice large theater that was there in Paul's day. Would have seated several thousand people. You find a, a basilica, an ancient church that was built in the 6th or 7th century A.D. You find a Roman forum. You find different buildings around here. But this is this is basically what the city was laid out to look like. There's somewhat of a modern day picture of just the ruins of the city and the location of the city of Philippi. There's a picture of the uh, theater or amphitheater, uh, very well preserved as you can see. And there's uh, one of the old uh, markers for the, the Ignatia Way that ran the Roman road, the Romans built the Rome through this whole part of the country very important road, very high traffic road. Armies would go down it, business would go down it, travel for pleasure would go down it. It's called the Ignatia Way in Greek on the top and Latin on the bottom. This is actually part of that road from Neapolis going up to Philippi, that nine mile stretch. Paul would have walked on this road. Isn't that kind of neat to think about that all the way back then? This is a remnant of the road that the Apostle Paul himself would have walked on when he went from landed in Neapolis and gone up to Philippi. This is part of that road. Here it is, part of the road in Philippi. And see that rut there? That's from the chariots. The wagons and stuff that were pulled on the road actually would, would, would gouge out a rut in the rock because it's made out of stones. Here are some of the uh, ruins in Philippi, just different uh, ancient buildings. You can see again uh, some of the beautiful mountains. Uh, this is, I think it was that mountain where they found a lot of gold, so there would be gold mines over there. And this is a pathway that's going to lead out of the city down to the river. It's a modern day pathway, obviously, but right outside the city there was this, this uh, river. And... Uh, as we read, for example, in verse uh, 13, it says, On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing there would be a place of prayer and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Now, what's interesting, apparently there was no synagogue in Philippi. There weren't enough Jews there to, to have a, a synagogue. According to the, the customary rules, you needed ten Jewish men times two. You needed ten Jewish men to form actually a synagogue. If you didn't have ten men, then you couldn't officially form a synagogue and build your build your synagogue building. So, and the fact that uh, when he goes down to the riverside, because traditionally, if the Jews didn't have a uh, a building to meet in. They would look for a place that had water and they would go and they would 
hold their, their meetings there for the sake of ritual cleansing and baptisms and things like that. So they're assuming, supposing, verse 13, that there would be a place of prayer where whatever few Jews are in the area would meet. So they go down to the river and sure enough, there's a group of women who had assembled there for prayer. And Paul is going to uh, address them. And uh, there's a Greek Orthodox church on this location there. And inside they have a painting of Paul. They have a painting of Lydia. So it's a pretty neat, uh, pretty neat thing. Now we are told, for example, in verse 14, that a woman named Lydia was there from the city of Thyatira. And this is very interesting because she's from Thyatira. She's now in Philippi. So what's the deal? Well, we were told in verse 14 that she was a, basically a businesswoman. She was a seller of purple fabrics and she was a worshiper of God. Now, as a businesswoman, uh, being there in Philippi, coming from Thyatira, there's an interesting display of the providence of God. Thyatira was really a, a city that was known for its guilds of dyers, those who worked with cloth and would dye cloth, and also its textile industry. And they had a very lucrative trade in exporting their purple dye into Macedonia. So Lydia, whatever her standing was in society, she was either the owner of the business or she was one of the leading salespersons or whatever, we don't know, but she goes from Thyatira all the way to Philippi and she's selling her purple cloth there or her dye there. And so she's very affluent. We're told that it takes about... They would get this purple dye from shellfish and it took about 8,000 mollusks to make one gram of purple dye. So it's extremely expensive. The only people who wore purple back then would be like emperors, very powerful Roman officials or wealthy private citizens and they would wear it as a status symbol. So this purple material, so she, she dealt with a, a high clientele. It'd be like uh, someone who, who sells Ferraris. You know, you're only going to sell to the upper crust. So that was her clientele. She had business with, with those kinds of people. So she's there in Philippi. And isn't it interesting that God to had told Paul not to go into Asia, which is where Thyatira was. Why? Well, we don't know fully the mind of God. But there is a woman from Thyatira that God wanted to save. But she wasn't there anymore. She was in Philippi. So you're going to get the gospel to a woman now in Macedonia. So you got to close the door to Asia, close the door to Bithynia, bring him to Troas, give him a vision, go to Macedonia. He goes to Macedonia, he goes to Philippi, he goes down to the river, and here's a woman from Asia that God had sovereignly, providentially directed her way over to Philippi so she could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God arranged for the meeting of Paul and the meeting of Lydia at this riverside so she could hear the gospel and be saved. And it's just kind of a, an interesting study in the providence of God. Now we're also told in verse 14 that she's a worshiper of God. Which means that she had 
learned some about the Jewish faith. Probably in Asia, Thyatira, there would be a larger Jewish influence and community in that part. But apparently in Philippi, there wasn't that many Jews there. No synagogue. But she was a worshiper of God. And she had embraced the, the worship of the God of the Jews, even though she had not officially converted to be a Jew. That's what it means that she's described just as a worshiper of God. So she did have some familiarity with the Old Testament Scriptures and with the God of Israel, though she was not yet really a true believer. And then we come to these amazing words in verse 14. That she was listening to Paul preach. She was listening and the Lord opened her heart. And then she responded. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Before she was listening, but she wasn't responding. And then God opened her heart and she responded in faith and repentance to the Gospel. This is a... This is an amazing expression here that God opened her heart. And this word opened is a very powerful word found throughout Scripture to describe God's miraculous influence. For example, let me just give you some examples of this. It's used of Christ who who opened the ears of a deaf man. His ears were shut closed. He couldn't hear. He couldn't open his ears, but God opened his ears. It was a work of God's miraculous supernatural grace. This is the same word that's used of God opening the womb of the barren. It's the word of God in Psalm 105 who opened the rock at Mount Sinai to cause water to gush out. It's the same word that God used when He open the mouth of the donkey to speak clear English. Actually, it had been Hebrew back then. He opened the eyes of the blind. Blind can't open their eyes, but God can and God did. Miraculously opening the eyes of the blind. He also opened the eyes of Elisha's servants so he could see the, the angels and chariots of fire surrounding them to protect them. This is the same word of the angel who opened the prison gates to let Peter and John come out freely in Acts earlier in our study. Uh, Acts chapter 12. This is the word of Peter by God's power opening the eyes of Tabitha, the dead little girl. And she came alive and opened her eyes. That's the work of God. It's also used in opening the graves of the dead in Ezekiel 37 and Matthew 27 when the dead shall arise and their graves are opened up. God does that. The dead can't do that. But God can. And this is the word that's used for opening up the heavens when God sent down the Holy Spirit to anoint Christ right after His baptism. And when the risen Lord Jesus same word in Luke chapter 24. Open the eyes of those two disciples whom they walked on the road to Emmaus and ended up in Emmaus. And it, they didn't recognize Jesus. But when the Lord opened their eyes, they could see and they recognized Jesus. And later on in the same chapter, Luke 24 verse 45, it says that God opened their minds 
to understand and see Himself in all the Old Testament Scriptures. This is a powerful word for God's supernatural, miraculous intervention. To open the heart that we see here in verse 14 speaks of God's inside work to change the nature of the heart. You see, before the heart was closed and locked and sealed shut against the things of God. Let me get through a few pictures here I'm behind on. There are just some ruins, ruins. They look familiar, that couple there in front. Ruins. Ruins. These are some of the... um, the little shops in the market area where the different businesses would have uh, their wares inside. Lydia was probably in one of these shops in the market area of uh, Philippi. They're all lined up there outside the forum. This is actually the, the, the water, the little stream, the river. Think it's not the great big Mississippi River. This is like a, we'd call in Oklahoma, it's a creek. But this is a little river that flows right outside and this is where they think this whole encounter took place. There's another little picture of it. They've actually built a little island in the middle, middle of it and, and kind of uh, divided it in two in this section where they think uh, Paul may have actually met with Lydia and the other women who were there praying. And there's a little chapel right here. This is built by the Greek Orthodox Church uh, obviously many years later. There's the other end of it. They have little bleachers there because they can do baptisms here just where Lydia was later baptized. And there's actually, they've uh, formed a baptismal fount right in the middle of the river. And the water rushes through and that's where they baptize people all the time. But uh, back to my point that uh, when the Lord opened Lydia's heart, that is very suggestive. If God had to open it, that means it was shut. Right? Makes sense? It was shut before that. And because of our depravity, because of our sin nature, it was shut, locked, and sealed shut against the things of God. And of many, many verses in Scripture, which just talks about the the fact that we have shut our hearts off to the things of God. And we cannot open it and we will not open it so that God must open it if we're ever to respond to the Gospel. And here's one of many verses that really speak to the the natural depravity of man that closes and shuts the heart against God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Natural man is an unbeliever. Depraved unbeliever in his sin. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to Him. And He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So to open the heart, God must overcome all of this. This is an inside work of opening the heart to actually change the heart. Notice the natural man, the first thing he doesn't do is he doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. That'd be the Gospel. Certainly is included in the things of the Spirit of God. He doesn't accept it. This is a defect in his will. 
it would uh, it means he will not open the door to the gospel. He will not open the door to the things of the Spirit of God. He doesn't accept it. Come knocking, he said, no. Kind of like the, the salesman that comes to your door. I, I gave it the office. You don't even open the door. You just speak through the door. I gave it, go away. I gave it the office. That's their attitude towards the gospel. He does not accept it. He does not approve of it. He doesn't like it. He doesn't believe it's true. He does not accept it. There's a problem with his will. The door is shut and locked from the inside. Secondly, the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness to him. This is a defect in his attitudes. He's hostile to the gospel. The gospel is nonsense to him. It's idiocy. It's stupidity. It's foolishness. The door is shut from the inside and barred and sealed and locked. Thirdly, he cannot understand it. He doesn't even have the mind that can comprehend it. He cannot. This is a a description of the total inability of the natural man. He cannot understand it. Say, well, wait a second. Thought we had a free will. Can't we do that? Well, there's no free will here. He cannot understand it. He can't even understand it. Because why? They're spiritually appraised. That means you have to have a spiritual ears and a spiritual mind to understand the things of the Spirit of God. And the natural man does not have that because all he has is the flesh. The fact that he cannot understand means there's a defect in his mind. The effects of sin has so warped his mind so that he's not able to understand his own sin so he doesn't understand his need for a Savior. He doesn't understand that. He thinks he's basically a good person. I'm going to go to heaven because basically I'm good. He doesn't understand the Gospel. He said, no, you're a guilty, hell-bound sinner and there's nothing, nothing you can do to save yourself. He doesn't understand that. That I need Jesus Christ and there's no other way to heaven but through Christ. He doesn't understand that. He cannot. It's not just that He won't. He can't. Because the effects of sin has so distorted His mind that the door is closed and shut and locked. So that God must change the nature of the heart. He must transform the will, making it willing. He must remove the internatural hostility to God. And there is a hostility by nature that we have to God. That's why Paul says in Romans 5.10, when we were enemies, Christ died for us. And Paul could say in Romans 1, formerly we were alienated and hostile in mind. See, that hostile in mind shuts that door closed. And I will not open it. I do not accept it. It's foolishness. I don't understand it. Go away. That's all that can come out of the natural man. That is a sealed, shut, locked door. So what he will not do from the inside, what he cannot do from the inside, God does. And what God did to Lydia was that He opened her heart. The very thing she could not do herself. God reached down from heaven and by His power, He broke through all the resistance and He opened that heart so light could shine into the darkness. 
See, Jesus taught very clearly, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And not only does that speak to our inability, no one can come to me. That is, come in faith to me. That's what he means. No one can come to me. John 6.44 Unless the Father who sent me draws him. That depraved heart is unable to come. It doesn't want to come. No more than a gazelle wants to come to a lion. For it fears the lion. It's terrified by its claws and jaws. It won't come. But when God changes the heart, that little lamb runs freely in faith into the arms of the lion of the tribe of Judah in whose hands are love and mercy and eternal salvation. But that response will not happen until God first opens the heart. This transformation that's described here in verse 14 that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Otherwise, she never would have responded. This transformation is so radical. It's so profound. It's so revolutionary that the Bible describes it as an opening of the heart. A new birth from above. Being regenerated. A spiritual resurrection is how Paul describes it in other places. A giving spiritual sight to the spiritual blind. And it's all the work of God. Because we cannot do that to ourselves. That's why the Old Testament prophets foretold of this exact same thing happening to Lydia. And they talked about it centuries before Christ ever came and Paul ever preached. For example, Ezekiel 36, where God says, I will give you a new heart. Can you give yourself a new heart? You cannot. Can you change your heart? You cannot. Can God? Yes. He promises He will. I, God is speaking, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and will remove the heart of stone. That's all you've got is a heart of stone by nature. Don't think that your heart is free. Don't think your heart is alive. It is a cold stone, dead heart. That's what we've got by nature. God said, I'll take out that old, dead heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. Living flesh is the idea. Jeremiah 24-7 I, God is speaking, I will give them a heart to know Me before your heart does not know God. God must give you a new heart to know Him. Jeremiah 31-33 I will write My law on their heart. Who writes it on there? Not you. God does. In Jeremiah 32-40 I will put the fear of Me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from Me. Who puts that fear of God, that faith in God, that repentance towards God in our heart? God does. I will put the fear of Me in their hearts. You can't put it in there. Only God can. And notice throughout this, the emphasis where God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. We can't. God can. That's the whole point of this. Lydia was saved not because she made a, a choice within herself. That choice, well, she did make a choice, but the choice was go away. I don't want it. But when God opens her heart, then she makes a choice of faith. And this is an amazing thing. Because God must change the character of the heart before it will repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's why the Lord opened her heart to respond. The response of repentance, the response of faith, 
is the result of God's grace and mercy in opening her heart. Again, before that door was shut, and she was confined in the spiritual darkness of the prison of her own depravity. But when God opens that door, the light shines in. The Gospel by itself cannot penetrate a closed heart until God opens it. That's why John Calvin would say, the minister's teaching and speaking does does no good unless God adds His inward call. That opening, that, that grace, God must add in there first. And so basically what we see here in verse 14 is one of the verses in the Bible, one of the many verses, that uh, teach that ultimately our faith that saves us is a gift of God. It's not a result of our free will. So it's a gift of God. And that's why we can see Luke has already emphasized this many times already. You remember in Acts 5.31, he talked about God that was the one who gives repentance to Israel. And in Acts 11, it's God who who granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. In Acts 13.48, we've also seen this verse, that those who are appointed to eternal life believed. And God appoints the elect, and they're the ones who come to faith in Jesus Christ. And in Acts 14, how God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And so we see it again in this particular passage, this verse, that the Lord opened her heart to respond so she could respond to the things that Paul was speaking to her. This is what John Bunyan wrote about in his great hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. That's what God does when He saves us. Now, I know today within the church, there are many who believe in free will and would hold to what we refer to as the doctrine of free will, that ultimately my salvation is because I made a decision to choose Jesus Christ at some point in time. Many believers hold that. I think verse 14 contradicts that. I don't think there's a subatomic particle of any evidence for free will in verse 14. And this is just one of many, many, many. I wrote a book just laying out the verses that talk about faith as a gift of God, not a result of our free will. Now, if if Luke had believed in free will, how would he have written verse 14? He would have said that Lydia opened her heart to respond to the things that Paul was preaching, right? That would make sense. Lydia opened her heart. The Holy Spirit believed in that. That's what... Well, that's what Luke would have written. That's not what he writes. He gives all the glory to God. God opened her heart. And then she responded in repentance and faith. So that ultimately, that faith is a gift of God. Well, say, I don't understand. You have all these objections. Well, just start with this verse. Look at it. Think about it. What does it say? What does it not say? And just believe what it says. When God opened Lydia's heart, this is not a courtesy opening like a man, husband would open the door for his wife. Oh, she could do it herself. But he just does it because he's polite. This is not a polite opening of the door. This is a forced opening. There's a hostility 
there's a, there's a sinful nature on the inside holding that door closed. But God comes in effectual grace, irresistible grace, and He changes the nature of the heart. So it's no longer keeping the door shut, but oh Christ, I need You. I want You. I'm a sinner. And only You can forgive me. Save me. And the heart is changed. And that produces the result of repentance and faith. She could no more open the door of her own heart than Lazarus after being dead for four days in the tomb and stinketh, according to the King James Version. She could no more open this door than Lazarus after being dead for four days could roll away the stone and open the door to his own tomb. Why? Because there's death on the inside. And in Lydia's case, in your case, in my case, before we were saved, there's death on the inside. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Lazarus couldn't open the door of his tomb. Lydia couldn't open the door of her heart. But God can. When did this opening actually occur? Well, there's an interesting... uh, Notice this while Paul is preaching. James chapter 1, verse 18 gives a very insightful verse about the timing of when God normally opens the heart of a sinner so they come to faith in Christ when the lights come on. He says, James 1.18, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth. That is, He gave birth to us by the Word of truth so that we would be the kind of first fruits among His creatures. So it's while the Word of truth is being preached, while the Gospel is being preached, and someone is listening, and maybe they're not liking the message, or maybe they're just indifferent to the message, and then suddenly God breaks through and opens the heart, and the light floods in, the heart is changed, and they see their sin, and they see their need for Christ for the first time in their life. And they can't help but believe. And that's exactly what happened with with Lydia. The change of her life is very radical in verse 15. She and her household had, when she and her household had been baptized, so she was baptized, and her household. Now she was a businesswoman living in a foreign land, probably didn't have little babies with her, little children. She was either single or a widow, more than likely. I'll deal with household baptisms in another another passage. But she was obedient and being baptized. And that's what you do. When you come to true faith and you're truly born again, your heart's changed. You want to obey Christ. And she did that. And she was baptized in that little river. And then secondly, not only did she submit to Christian baptism, she also showed hospitality when she said to Paul, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, verse 15, Come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. In other words, she was persistent. And you couldn't say no to her. Lydia was a very influential person. Someone once said that uh, the Lord opened her heart and she opened her home. And that's kind of how it goes. You see that effect of grace. You see that new life within her. And now she wants to show hospitality. So she must have lived in a large house. 
because you have Paul, you have Silas, you have Timothy, you have Luke, and who knows who else might be traveling with them. But she was able to show hospitality to all of them. And it's interesting, later in Paul's life when he writes his letter to this church at Philippi, you can almost see the the influence and the fingerprints of Lydia still in the church. Because he says to them that, you know, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. And then he says, I've received what you've sent through Epaphroditus and now all my needs are met and it was an acceptable sacrifice that you made well-pleasing to God. You can see the influence of Lydia. She had a giving heart, showing hospitality. And the church took on that characteristic because she must have been a woman of great influence. And no doubt you see that even when Paul writes that letter to the Philippian church. Well, why why does the Spirit of God emphasize this concept that faith is a gift of God? That God must first do His work on the inside and change the heart before we ever come to faith in Christ. Why is that emphasized so much? Throughout the book of Acts, throughout Luke's other writings, the Gospel of Luke, throughout the rest of the New Testament, even the Old Testament, there are many, many verses that teach Why does the Spirit of God emphasize that so much? Well, it's because this is one of the things we need to learn to give thanks to God for. Remember when uh, Paul wrote his letter to the, Coloss- the Colossians? And he said, we give thanks to God. Why does he give thanks to God for them about, concerning? He says, we give thanks to God. He's talking to the Colossians. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ and the love which you have for all the saints. Now, if their faith came from themselves, why would Paul thank God for their faith if the faith came from their own free will decision? Do you ever think about that? But he said, I'm, I thank God for your faith. Why does he thank God for their faith? Because God was the one who gave them their faith. That God was the one who opened their hearts so they could have faith in Jesus Christ. It's ultimately the work of God. It's the grace of God. And I think that's one of the takeaways from this passage for you and me this morning. Because we're here to worship. And worship is not just soaking in information. Worship is receiving God's truth from the Word of God and then responding to it. If you don't respond, you're not worshiping. You're just sitting here. But we're to respond. We're to worship. And how should you worship and make a response to what we've studied in this passage this morning? We need to thank God that He opened our heart and gave us faith. And how many times have you thanked God? Oh Lord, thank You for changing my heart and giving me faith. That's one of the things we should be thanking God for regularly. And remember that the God who gives saving faith is also the God who sustains that faith. Because there are times in our life when our faith takes a beating. Those are times when, when our life is tried and we have ups and downs and things in our life and we don't understand what God is doing and life is confusing and life is tough. And we can get discouraged and depressed. And we begin to doubt and, and wonder, is my faith genuine? If God has given you faith, He has promised to sustain that faith. And this is an encouragement. If faith was totally up to you and you made your own faith, you could destroy your own faith. 
But if God gave you faith, and the gifts of God are irrevocable, He never takes them back. If God gave you faith, then He will sustain it all the way to the end. That's why we're to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the what? The author and perfecter of what? Faith. He's the author. He creates it. He's the perfecter. He's a, he sanctifies it. And we're to keep our eyes fixed on Him. If you gave you faith, He will sustain you faith. Sustain your faith. And Paul reminds us in Philippians that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Take courage, beloved. You who are troubled, you who are struggling, your faith may be like it's getting beat up today, but God will not let it die. Christ said to Peter, Peter, Satan has requested permission to sift you like wheat, but take courage. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Christ's high priestly ministry of praying for you sustains your faith. Why? He gave you faith. He's promised to sustain it. He's the author and the perfecter of your faith. And we need to give Him thanks and praise for that gift. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, it's one of the great blessings that's tied up in the cross and the resurrection. Because when Jesus came and died on the cross and shed His blood and died in our place, He died to secure a whole bundle of blessings. If you count the blessings, they would reach all the way up to heaven. Forgiveness of sins, justification, sanctification, glorification, adoption into the family of God. The gift of righteousness of Christ that we've received. All these incredible blessings Christ won for us when He died on the cross. And He also won the grace of faith for each one of His children. So that the grace when God would come and open our heart and give us that faith that we might be saved was also part of the blessing that Christ died to pay the price for all of that and secure it for all of His people. And so when we gather to the Lord's Supper this morning, and we remember the bread and the cup, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, what He died to do is to save you from your sins, but He also died to secure for you the grace to open your heart so that you might believe in Christ to receive the great inheritance and all the other blessings. It's a package deal, beloved. And His death secured and paid the price for us receiving all of that. What a tremendous blessing. And what a tremendous opportunity we have to remember the price that was paid to purchase not only heaven and forgiveness, but the actual gift of repentance and faith by which we receive those gifts. That all comes from the gracious, loving hand of our Savior. Oh, thank You, Father, for sending Your Son to die on the cross to pay the price to purchase for us all of this grace and now receive our praise and our worship. In Jesus' name, Amen.